What's your favorite type of candy? Come on, adults. What? Twigs. All right. Well, you know, we want to become the best place in the whole neighborhood to come and get cool candy. So you bring the candy of your choice. Um, we have uh, been in a series uh, in these weeks uh, entitled Why Revival Tarries. And um, it has to do with your personal spiritual awakening and for us to see the church of Jesus Christ revived beginning here with our church. And uh, I've had good conversations with many of you through these weeks. And as we've been on this journey and we're continuing in that journey this morning, um, I have found that God has been speaking to a few of you. He's been speaking to a few of you related to not just the subject matter, but related to your own personal life. And I thought we would just take a few moments here and sort of open the floor up to hear what God has been saying to you through this series. And yes, you're going to have to stand. You will say your first name. And you'll say, this is something God's been saying to me through our time of talking about personal spiritual awakening. And um, I don't know maybe where you're at with uh, some of the uh, thinking of the series. And maybe you're like, oh my goodness, I can't even remember what happened uh, this morning, let alone uh, the last few weeks. So let's walk through a few of those uh, aspects of what we were talking about for why revival tarries. That there's a lack of spiritual hunger... Lord, I want more. There is a lack of, um, wow, how did I get two of the same up there? There's actually a lack of divine belief. I think we redid the slide right at the end and we doubled up. There's a lack of divine belief and God can really wake us up and change and move on the church. There's a lack of godly obedience and then there is a lack of Deep repentance that we talked about last week. So that's sort of where you're at. Pastor Trey has the microphone. What's God been saying to you about a personal spiritual awakening? Or maybe something about uh, reviving dead churches and what God's even calling us to um, in this valley or maybe as God calls the evangelical church in the nations. Raise your hand, stand up, your first name, and then you're on. We have not done this for a while, so I expected this response. There we go. We're good. It'll happen. It's like popcorn. It goes slow, but uh, great. Your first name. Thanks for not letting me hang, Ken. Part of this spiritual awakening. 
Good. Thank you, Ken. So grateful. Oh, how'd you get that mic? <laughs> You're good. Testing. Oh, hi. Hi, my name's Kayla. Um, during this revival of um, what Pastor's speaking about when we saw the first video, um, he said it starts at home. And I homeschool my girls, and I wasn't starting at home. And so that opened the door for a lot of um, conversations, and I was actually gifted a uh, curriculum for just talking and starting from the beginning and working through it. And so that was an awesome gift to start me on a different path to make it smaller questions. And then I get to learn something from them. And I was, I, I get comfortable very quickly. Mm -hmm. So I have to keep moving and moving. And with this, it's, it's always heart-wrenching because we all need an awakening, not just mm -hmm. in the world, but in the church. So that way we can flow mm -hmm. through other people. Thank you, Kayla. I think, uh, yeah, we all realize sometimes it seems like forever raising our kids. But we do have a small window of opportunity to influence them and encourage them to be alive and to be awakened in their own spiritual dimension. Hello, there we go. Hello, my name is JP Wright, and uh, the Lord really moved me to serve. Was meant to do two things: love God and love people. Thank you, JP. And part of that aspects of godly obedience. I think that. Oh. Okay. <laughs> okay. I said this was short. I think that because of the church and uh, and the families here, that revival begins with the Bible. That, that's where we're that's where we're from. It begins with the Bible and ends with the Bible. Word of God. Thank you. Amen. And my name is Maria. There you go. <laughs> All right, others. What's God doing in your heart? My name's Debbie, and um, a couple of weeks ago when you preached. The Lord just really um, touched my heart, and I went up there, and um, I just started crying, and I guess it was part of that repentance because I felt like God has given me so much, and I, for so many years, I just didn't appreciate everything that he gave me, and um, <laughs> it almost makes me want to cry now. Um, because 
he's given me so much, and I haven't really shown people the things that he's given me. And I just need to go out there, and um, I think all of our hearts need to be quickened to that, that we just need to be God's hands and feet and be everything that he's given us and shown us. Thank you, Debbie. Anyone else? What's God been speaking to you about concerning your own personal spiritual awakening or a revived church uh, in the day in which we live? Amen. Amen. Uh, Maybe one more. Thank you, Cameron. I think that's a good one to end on with my brother Cameron. It's good to have him and his friend visiting from uh, Texas today. Uh, Cameron, you were definitely an example of someone who was spiritually dead and became spiritually alive through the journey that I've known you on and uh, through your involvement here at the church and now to have our interaction back and forth sometimes by text and otherwise you're staying alive. That's good. And staying revived. I uh, want to encourage each and every one of us that um, the Lord has something for you. 
Sometimes you hear other people give testimony. And you go, oh, that's good. I'm really happy for them. But the Lord has something for you. And the Lord has something for you spiritually uh, to take you to places that you've never been before. And I think the phrase that many of you have been using in these weeks that I've interacted with you is the phrase we started out with, which was this simple phrase, Lord, there must be more. There must be more. I was uh, trying to think through images of people wanting more, and uh, sometimes we see that uh, evidenced by television commercials of people wanting more of this or people wanting more of uh, fame or popularity, material things. And I had this image come to my mind of the cookie monster. So you remember the cookie monster, right, from uh, Sesame Street? It just, I want more, I want more and more. And that aggressiveness, is that a part of your spirit that you want more, as was testimony here, of Jesus? More of Jesus. And I don't know if it was the cookie monster or the Holy Spirit, but uh, I went to bed with a hymn uh, that was brought to my mind. It was the Holy Spirit, trust me. Um, <laughs> and I had not thought of this hymn for a long time. Some of you grew up in churches that had hymns, and sometimes I wish that maybe we would just have some hymn fest and go back and then a bunch of you wouldn't show up because you didn't know the hymns, maybe. I don't know. But some of you are familiar with the hymns. And uh, this hymn, I remember as a young boy that I would be seated with my parents in the, and this hymn would be sung. And throughout year, many years of my life, and I went to bed with that song on my mind, and it was weird because I woke up the next morning this week with the same hymn. And this is the hymn. More about Jesus would I know. Any of you know that one? More about Jesus would I know. And you're looking dead at me going, no. More of his grace to others show. More of his saving fullness see, more of his love who died for me. Any of you know that hymn? We got to sing hymns. <laughs> because, see, that's the heart that I was brought up underneath was my parents. And I appreciate what you say, Caleb, about starts in the home. My parents were always parents who wanted to see more about Jesus. Part of it is because we're a part of the Christian Missionary Alliance, and the Christian Missionary Alliance was founded on a deep hunger of depth in knowing Jesus and taking the knowledge and the message of Jesus to the whole world. All of Jesus for all the world. In fact, yesterday we had the next conference here, and, and Michael and Sadie Gilmer were leading it, and, and uh, David Gilmer spoke, and, and many uh, other people came, and it was focused on youth and children and how we can encourage them to be fully alive in Christ and to his mission, but through the Alliance Statement, all of Jesus for all the world, and I had a chance to meet the new children's, National Children's Director for the Christian Missionary Alliance, and she has a missionary heart and being able to encourage young children to be able to have a heart for the world. And I thought, man, that's part of what we need to have in our children's ministry and, and all that's going on because I want us to sit underneath teaching, encouragement, rub shoulders with people who are hungry. Lord, there must 
be more. And as this hymn would state that I said underneath, more about Jesus would I know, more of his grace to others show, more of his saving fullness see, more of his love who died for me. More, more about Jesus. More, more about Jesus. More of his saving fullness see, more of his love who died for me. More about Jesus let me learn, more of his holy will discern. Spirit of God, my teacher be, showing the things of Christ to me. More, more about Jesus. More, more about Jesus. More of his saving fullness see, more of his love who died for me. You just take that simple phrase and you turn it into a prayer every day of your life. Lord, there must be more. Lord, more of you, Jesus. Because one of the things we're going to be talking about today has to do with the trappings of religion and institutional faith and how it moves us down paths that are dead ends. I, uh, I've been trying to listen to the Lord each and every week, and I still don't know how long this series is going to be going on. But I've been asking the Lord, um, what would you have for your people today? What would you have for me? And when I finished last week, I had this fleeting thought, and it was confirmed to me pretty quickly afterwards, that what we talked about last week, we are not done with. And so last week, we talked about the subject of why revival tarries, because there's a lack of deep repentance. Repentance is not a familiar subject and a lot of gospel teaching today. But you cannot move forward in your faith and be quickened to be alive without dealing with the need for repentance, and I believe deep repentance. But repentance is interesting because there's a lack of context for what it fully means. And so we're going to revisit that today Last week, I gave reference to this verse in Acts. Uh, there's so many scriptures I could have pulled from um, in talking about repentance. But Peter was standing and proclaiming to the people of his day right after Jesus had ascended to the heavens, the Holy Spirit had come, and really the church was being birthed in the movement around the world that we know it for today. And he stood up and he just simply said, repent then and turn to God. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. And his message did not deter too much from that simple point. Repent and believe and follow Jesus. Repent and believe and follow Jesus that your sins may be wiped out, that you may have times of refreshing, and that you yourself may uh, be one who anticipates the soon return of Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah. And we said that today, because repentance is not spoken on, that sometimes there's a misunderstanding for what it is. And these are three uh, common ways that we uh, sort of misunderstand what repentance is. Repentance is not an emotion. It's not a sense of sincere regret or remorse. And it's not this, well, I just, I'm sorry. 
And so when we have people that um, sin against us, people that harm us, people that have done us wrong, you got examples of a few of those in your life? And uh, we, we want them, uh, you know, to act a certain way that they're not acting or come to us and you know, maybe ask for forgiveness, that kinds of things. Uh, we, we want them to, to have repentance kind of thing. And so we think, okay, they just need to have a repentant spirit and we want them to, uh, you know, uh, feel sorry for what they did. Or we want them to have regret and remorse. But you need to know this, repentance scripturally, doesn't have anything to do with emotions. In fact, you can get some great pulpiteers and preachers and they preach about this and that, and we're going to be looking at some issues of sin here this morning. And, and even as I was looking at it, I'm like, well, this is the kind of message that I could just really take and really grind into each one of us because all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? And it's like, well, what about you here? And what about you here? And I, and, and I can stir up the emotions. You can start to feel bad. You can start to feel guilty. You can start to feel that sense of shame over again. And then, then we could have a big altar call. And we'd say, you know, you come and, and repent. But biblically, repentance really doesn't have anything to do with emotion. Now, there's emotion that comes with it most times. Because you see the wretchedness of who you are, right? And you see the glory of God that we've talked about. But there's this aspect that we need to understand what repentance is, place ourselves before God, and as He brings conviction. I remember times that um, I've had where it just has come upon me that God would just break my heart for something I've done or something I'm not doing. And the emotions come with that sense of repentance before God. And there's almost a cleansing sometimes. You know, like when you have a good cry over something, right? And, and so it's not that you're trying to uh, separate emotion out of it. But we think in terms of emotion mostly when we think in terms of repentance. And that's not true. So what does the scripture teach about repentance? Well, if you took the New Testament and you took the Old Testament, there's actually two definitions concerning repentance, and you need to bring those two definitions together. The first, as it relates to repentance, in the New Testament, it talks about a change of mind. And so Peter, when he's standing and he's preaching and he's, you know, this is fresh off the turf of Jesus, you know, being crucified and being raised from the grave and all this kind of controversy as to who Jesus was. Was he the Jewish Messiah? Has he come to save the world? Is he somebody of importance to me? Was he indeed alive? Who is he? Was he God? All this kind of thing is that he would say, repent and believe. There is a changing of the mind foremostly concerning who Jesus Christ is. And so if you're going to have repentance, you need to alter, you need to have a turning around of the way that you've been thinking. And that's front and center with Jesus Christ. But then in the Old Testament, what was ported into this New Testament teaching of repentance is the idea that repentance does mean to literally turn around turn around. And so just in case 
you're not clear about that. Let's demonstrate that physically, right? Turning around means if I'm moving this direction, I am stopping, I'm changing my mind, my belief, and I am turning around and I'm now moving this direction, right? So repentance has to do with not only the changing of the mind, but also the changing of your direction. It's turning around. Now, the problem with a lot of times with us or with people maybe around you, their repentance is like this. They are moving this direction, and then they feel bad, and they go, yeah, I need to stop that, or I need to confess that before God. And so you have that changing of mind and what Jesus wants you to do. And so then you turn around and you start walking this direction. But then you turn around and you walk this direction. And then you turn around and you walk this direction. And you turn around and you walk this direction. And you don't get anywhere in life if you do that. The, return, the turning around has to do with a adamant, almost defiant kind of thing. No, I am no longer going that direction. And so many times it's the temptation of Satan. When you have come to a place of deep repentance and you've changed your mind about your belief and your, uh, and your worship of Jesus and who he is, and you, you've seen your life turn around and you stop going that direction and, and those pitfalls of sin or indifference or, or just self-centeredness, and, and you're walking back, you're walking to Jesus, and then all of a sudden Satan says, oh, wait, did you realize what you left behind there? That was sort of some fun stuff. Or this is hard walking with Jesus and going this direction. And you don't even realize it. And you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, um, all right, uh, here, and back here, and back here. And you're a double-minded man, unstable in all you does with, uh, that you do that Scripture teaches. Repentance, deep repentance, is the New Testament idea of the change of mind and the Old Testament idea of to turn around. And I gave uh, this reference last week that was uh, given by Leonard Ravenel. Repentance is to leave this thing I've done before and show in earnestness I grieve by doing it no more. Repentance. Repentance. Why is deep repentance lacking? We uh, gave reference to a few of these last week. We said deep repentance is lacking because we have not beheld the holiness of his glory. We looked at Isaiah 6. We looked at uh, David as he was uh, caught in his sin of adultery and actually murder. And so there was this beholding of God and there's this sense of, oh my goodness, uh, look who God is. And so for us to have that change of mind and to turn around, it's because we're not dialing into the supreme glory of God. And we said that uh, there's a lack of deep repentance because we've not confessed, and I use this heavy term, the wretchedness of our sin, right? The ugliness of it, how it's so against God's perfection. I, you know, sometimes I have days, you have days where you long for heaven. Not just have the new heaven and the new earth, because you see all the uglies, your own here on this earth. You see all the sin that's around you in your own life, and heaven, can you comprehend this? 
there is no wretchedness. It is beautiful. It is holy. It is without sin. And the righteousness of Jesus will reign supreme. Don't you want to be there? Then why are you trying to squeeze everything out of this earth and get all the, the freebie experiences and accolades here? You were destined. God has put eternity in your heart. And he's put in our hearts the desire to be, be in a place and be with others where sin is no more. But here, there is sin. And it contaminates everything around us. In our culture, our society, in our families, in our personal lives, at your workplace, in your school, there's sin. But we try to ignore it and stay clear from it. It's all right. It's not sin. We don't even like to use the word sin. Who uses the word sin today, right? So it's got to be present. Because if there's not an acknowledgement of sin, and that we're guilty of sin, then there is no hope for you and I, because there's only a Savior, and a Savior can only save you if you realize that you are a wretched sinner. And you can have God's saving grace of forgiveness, not because of what you have done or what you can do, but because of who He is and what He has done. That's the gospel message. And then we looked at this aspect of David that uh, deep repentance lacking because we do not fear the absence of his presence. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And then he says, do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Your lack of repentance is not causing God to move. It's because you've moved. And when you have a change of mind and you turn around and re-look at him and pursue him, he's been there all the time with open arms. But if we do not repent of sin and turn, we start to move outside of his presence. And if you've ever been in the presence of God and felt that conviction, felt that joy, sung in worship, you don't want to lose that. By turning the wrong way and going in a direction that takes you outside of his presence. You're never ever alone, even when you're in your deepest pit. But if you don't have a repentant, humble heart before the Lord, then there's a distance that exists between you and him. Just like when you're at odds with a family member or somebody at your workplace that's you know, not done you right. There's so like, I just want to stay clear from him. And so here was King David on the heels of his sin and his repentance. Cast me not away from your presence, Lord. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. And then we finished with this one last week that um, repentance is lacking many a times because we have not broken up the hardness of our heart. And we gave reference to uh, this verse in Hosea which says, break up your fallow ground, hard ground, ground that used to you know, have crops grow in it, but become hardened by the rain and the sun. Just hard. For it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and rains righteousness on you. And I gave reference to this um, brochure, but it really is uh, uh, a work by Charles Finney, one of the great revivalists of the Second Great Awakening here in America, and how it was redone by um, Keith and Melody Green. 
and I gave reference to it, and when I walked off the stage last week, and I knew that God was calling us to have that time of communion, and, and the minutes had clicked by a little bit, I felt the Lord's Spirit say to me, Carrie, you didn't read through that list that I gave to Finney. I'm like, really? Yeah. Because a lot of times as it relates to sin, we need tangible things to identify with what is in disobedience to God and what we need to repent of, change our mind about, and turn around from. And so I just want to give you uh, a little... I don't know if it's a list for you or not. Maybe there's a couple in here. He lists several things, and he puts them in two categories. There's the sin of omission and the sin of commission. Sin of omission is things you're, you know, uh, omitting out of your life that you're not doing that you should be doing, and commission are sins that you're committing that you need to stop doing. And so his list on the omission side is this. Ingratitude. You're unthankful. Lack of love for God. Neglect of the Bible. Unbelief. The lack of prayer. The neglect of fellowship. Being in community with others. The manner in which you have performed your spiritual duties. Lack of love for souls, people that do not know Jesus. Lack of care for the poor and lost in other countries and foreign lands. Neglect of family duties. Lack of watchfulness over your witness. Neglect to watch over your brothers and sisters in the faith. Neglect of self-denial, that spirit of humility. And then he turns to the list of sins of commission. How many did you total up that time? All right, here we go. The love of things and possessions. Vanity, how I look, and image issues. Envy, jealousy of other things or what other people have. Bitterness, has the underbelly of the unforgiveness towards someone. Slander. That you gossip about people. Levity, which is a spirit of excessive humor, and it, it has to do a lot of times with uh, just frivolous thinking about God or not believing in God, joking about it. Lying, cheating, hypocrisy, saying one thing and then doing another. Robbing God as it relates to the giving of your resources to his work, tithes and offerings. A bad temper. Hindering others from being useful. Holding them back. Idols and other religions. That's a list of 26 total. But it's interesting, and Keith and Melody Green give reference to it, that uh, when they sat down and they walked through these, that there were whole categories of sins that are common today that would have never been spoken of in the church during Charles Finney's day in the, the mid-1800s a lot of times. Some of these include fornication and sexual sins, the whole area of false peace induced by drugs and occult uh, involvement, including astrology and witchcraft, 
wrongful meditation, the whole gamut of Eastern religions, New Age movement, if you will, and philosophies. That's a heavy list. That list, though, is not for the purpose of grinding us into some type of emotional state, but this active thing of breaking up the fallow ground requires attentiveness to the activity and attitudes of your life. And are those wholesome? Are they godly? And whether they're sins of omission that you're, you've not been doing, or sins of commission, active things that God would say stop doing, the self-examined life is a critical aspect of spiritual awakening and revival. And I believe with this whole subject of repentance, the reason God say, hey, park there another day, is to encourage us not to get into the, oh, woe is me, I'm undone, I'm the wretched sin, right? It's to encourage you to examine your life because the Holy Spirit is wanting to quicken you about ways that maybe you had turned from and now you're starting to flirt back with. Or maybe he just has never shined the spotlight on something and you've been walking with the Lord for a period of time now and he says, all right, I've been giving you, you, know, giving you some ease. Now, let me turn it up another volume. Or let me put the strobe on so you get some attention there. This needs to go. This is not healthy. And we live in a culture that doesn't want us to examine our lives and then realize that we are in error or in disobedience towards God. We are taught to examine our lives to find out what we want more of. Not more of Jesus, but more popularity, more pleasure, more time off, more you know, resources to do cool things, more, more, more. And so the examined life is usually a very self-centered type of exhortation in our culture. But scripture says that you need to examine your life to see how it's not in alignment with God. Not because God's a big, you know, uh, uh, a meanie up there with a, a Bible that's thumping you. Don't do this. Don't. No, it's times of repentance that leads us to rejoicing. Scripture says, your kindness, Lord, leads us to repentance. It's his kindness, his endearment, because when you're going the wrong direction, when you're not pursuing more of Jesus, and you're trying to find your fulfillment, all these other things in life, he knows that they're dead end. They're dead end. You ever gone down a dead end? I remember one of the worst times I ever went down a dead end was when I was on a bicycle with a group of friends in Israel. We were there for a month with a larger group of about 50. We were touring Israel, and we headed down this mountain that was fun. We were the lead group, the five or six of us. I mean, we were speeding down this mountain. And then we realized it was a dead end. Oh, my goodness. We looked back up the mountain. We walked up in a sense of shame and beat ourselves up because we were heading a direction that was a dead end. God's that way. His kindness leads you to repentance. Don't go that way. Come this way. 
And as you open your heart up to let his Holy Spirit examine you, he will take his flashlight of his word and start to point out things in your life, not to make you feel terrible, but to get you to change your mind and turn around. Don't go that way. Stop. I've got plans for you. I need you. I want to use you. I want you to live with me forever, but I got things for you today in your life. And my grace is sufficient. It's not about what you do or do, have done. It's about what I did. Come, turn, follow me. So break up your follow ground. This whole subject of deep repentance, a lot of times we don't end up there because we do not. Take the time to live a self-examined life through the power of the Spirit and the Scripture. I want to frame it up this way as it relates to this whole changing of mind and turning it. Biblical repentance, then, is an ongoing, permanent change in direction related to loving and living for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's our affirmations, and that's why Peter would say, hey, repent and believe. It's like, hey, change your mind about Jesus. You ever change your mind about somebody you thought was a scoundrel? No good for nothing. Then you start to get to know them, and it's like, you know, they're not that bad. I, I almost think Peter's saying that, even to the religious elite today. Right, Jesus, this Jesus whom you crucified, and he's pretty strong about it. You know, it, God has raised to life. He is the Messiah. So it's this affirmation of belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it's taking our attitudes and submitting them to the Lord to purify concerning his lordship, that attitude of bitterness, that attitude of envy, whatever it may be. And then our actions, what we're doing or not doing, we're submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ. So we've been going one direction and the Holy Spirit convicts us saying, stop, change your mind about the lordship of Jesus Christ in all ways and turn and follow him a different direction. There are a lot of people today that think they're saved, but they're not saved because they merely had an intellectual assent to say, I believe Jesus was who he said he is. Friends, the devils and Satan himself believed Jesus. It's not just the change of the mind, but it's a repentance where you're now accepting him, believing into him as the Lord Jesus Christ. You're changing your mind and you're turning around from going the direction of indifference and you're now following him. Doesn't mean you don't fail or fall or sin. The Lord picks you up. And here's the reality of it. God's grace covers. He covers all your sin, past, present, and future. So when you ask for repentance, it's not for the sake of, please, please, pretty, please, pretty, pretty, please, will you forgive me for this one? His grace is sufficient. He's covered you. It's not about you. It's his righteousness you brought into your life. Your repentance is leading you back into restored relationship with him. And so the grace of God was there. Just don't trample on the grace or assume you've received that grace unless you've repented. Repentance is necessary for conversion, and a lot of times people think that they're saved, but they're not saved because there's never, never been a work of repentance. I don't know where else you can go because Peter, when he stands up, and, and the other disciples, and they begin preaching, even Paul, in those, in those New Testament times, they were always preaching belief and repentance together. 
Repent and be baptized, every one of you, which was an outer sign of the inner belief of following the Lordship of Jesus Christ, your affirmation, your public affirmation. Jesus cannot be the Lord of your life unless there's a repentance and a change of mind about who he ultimately is and that you're going to now live for him. And it's just a good word for not just us as a church, but people sitting in all kinds of churches and people outside churches today because you want the real thing, right? You don't want to placate yourself with some placebo of just trying to feel nice or get over it. You're okay. Be religious. Go to church. Do some deeds. You want the real thing, and the real thing's found in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I want to finish up, though, by referencing something else besides repentance related to sin. And it's something in Scripture that's pretty clear, but it's not very visible. It's this idea that there's a repentance from sin, but there's also a repentance from dead works. Maybe you've never heard this, but in um, Hebrews, it says this in Hebrews 9. It says, how much more will the blood of Jesus, of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Why doesn't it say from sin there? Well, apparently there's something called dead works. What are dead works? The writer to Hebrews here is stating that, you know, in the Old Testament times, they had to have animal sacrifices, the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. But Jesus was our great high priest, and he was the sacrificial lamb, and he shed his blood for the forgiveness of our life. Blood meaning the pouring out of his life, all right, unto salvation. And so the blood of Jesus Christ saves us from our sins. But he's giving reference that the blood of Jesus Christ, through the eternal spirit, he offered himself to cleanse our conscience from dead works. And then just a couple verses, a couple chapters prior to that, in Hebrews 6, 1, it says this, Therefore, leaving the elementary teachings about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. What are dead works? Well, I want to define dead works for you. Dead works is not, you know, work that you feel like you're dying from because it's so hard. Been there. I'm going to die if I have to finish this job, right? Dead works can be understood this way. Any religious act calculated to gain merit with God by human effort. You understand that? See, that was the system of the Old Testament, right? In many people's minds, I got to do a bunch of good things. If I do a bunch of good things, then I'll earn merit with God. Jesus had to deal with it. If you read through like John 6, and uh, he just, you know, performed the miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, you know, taking the loaves and the fish, multiplying it. And then he went to another side of the lake, Capernaum, and they chased him across the lake. And they came around the area and said, hey, man, what kind of works are you going to do to show who you are? And Jesus is going, these people don't understand. They're just here to get goodies for themselves. They just want to be fed. I am not a roving McDonald's. And 
and he had, he had to sort of put it back before them. I don't have time to go there in the scriptures, but he basically rolls out this understanding that he is the bread of life and that his life would be poured out. And that to follow him, to do that, that change of direction and turn, if, if you're going to do that, it's not going to be easy. So don't be looking to come to me to sort of gain the goodies or to gain favor. And when he told them that they needed to eat of a flesh, his flesh and drink of his blood in reference to the communion aspect of what he was about to do, they thought, we're out of here. And John 6, 66 says, and many, after hearing this, many turned and followed him no longer. Why? Because they were pursuing Jesus because they were pursuing God through dead works. They were trying to gain merit, trying to gain favor, trying to gain goodies. And he had a whole system of that. And so this repentance again unto dead works is, what is it that you're doing right now that is a work that's trying to earn favor with God? Yesterday in our men's group, it, it wasn't easy, but we read through the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5 is where we were at. And do you remember this story, Ananias and Sapphira? I mean, it was just beautiful stuff was happening with the new church. People were loving on one another. They were selling their stuff. They were giving to one another as needs were there. They were joining the apostles' teaching. They were having great worship services together. And, you know, someone came in and they articulated they'd sold a field of property and they were giving that to the people uh, in need and all those apart. And then Ananias and Sapphira, they thought, well, well, we'll do that. And so they went and sold a piece of property Separately, husband and wife came back before the disciples. They gave them the check. They had hair. Oh, thank you very much. Is this, is this all of it? Yeah, it's all of it. And the moment that Satan came upon Ananias and there was the sin of turning things into works, he fell dead. And Scripture says here, three hours later, I guess they didn't have cell phones to inform the wife the husband had gone. Three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the man who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died when the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her bedside beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Aren't you glad you didn't have to come to men's group yesterday morning to go through that story, huh? Yeah, it's a story about giving generously to God. But their sin had to do with dead works. They were trying to earn favor with God and with the church community. It was all about the looks. Harsh example, Spirit used it to put fear, a rightful fear of God in the body of Christ. May we not do anything that's a dead work trying to earn favor. You might have come here this morning thinking, if I went to church this morning, maybe I can earn some favor with God because I showed up at church. That would be a dead work. When the offering basket is passed, and you give an offering, if you're giving that offering to earn favor with God rather than to worship God and give generously out of your heart as he called you to give, that's a dead work. 
There's all kinds of dead works in churches today. It's not by works so that no man can boast, but by grace, through faith, and his generosity. Another aspect of dead works is a work which has no capacity to be made alive by the Spirit of God. You may be doing something you want God to bless, and he's saying, no, I'm not in it. Do you know you can't pray for dead people to go to heaven? The point of demand wants to die, and after that is the judgment. You define where you're going to be in the afterlife by what your decisions are in following the Lord in this life or not. But praying for dead people, that would be defined as a dead work. But there's other aspects of what we do that we think that the Holy Spirit's going to be with. He's called, but really, it's not. And, and so it's a dead work. Go ahead and do it. But it's a dead work. And then there's a third aspect. And I'll just close this whole summing up of defining what dead works is with this. Works that are done in the energy of the flesh versus the power of the Holy Spirit. These three points of definition come from Richard Owen Roberts, who is a revival historian. And Richard Owen Roberts speaks adamantly about the criticalness of having repentance if we're ever going to have revival. But our repentance is not only just a repentance of sin. It's a repentance of dead works. What are you doing right now that is a dead work as a Christian believer? Let the Lord purify it. Maybe it's something you're trying to calculate to earn favor with God and get in his good position. Maybe it's something that his Holy Spirit's just not on at all. Or something you've been called to do, but you're striving and doing it in the work of the flesh in yourself rather than trusting the Lord and letting the Lord deal with it. These are all dead works. Let us move on to maturity past the repentance of dead works. Let's not find ourselves caught up in that pursuit. But may we find ourselves rejoicing in the beauty and the glory of God's grace and who he is. The good news for you today is if you are not a believer of Jesus Christ, you can follow Jesus Christ. Repent of your sin. Change your mind about him. Affirmations, attitudes, and actions and follow Jesus. It's what he's done, not what you do. And receive his gift of salvation into your life. A simple prayer. Whether this morning, whether today, next week, I urge you, today is the day of salvation. And the Holy Spirit speaks, follow him. And if you're a believer, and you're messing with some sins or toying back into them, repent, turn from them. You don't need to get all emotional, put on sackcloth and ashes like they did. It's just sometimes it's emotional. I'm done. I'm not going that direction. I'm not going to hold that bitterness anymore. It's yours, Lord. I leave it at the foot of the cross. Okay, what's next? I don't mean to be flippant in that regards because sometimes it's a deep road of deep repentance. But don't feel like there has to be some emotional response in your life. It has to do with your change of mind and turning around. And maybe you as a believer today, there's sin that you need to repent of, but maybe it's also some dead works, and you just simply say, I need to let that go. I'm done. Lord, I embrace you. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up, and we're just going to close out by singing to the